Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester, and nuclear fusion promises one day to be the power of the future, with relatively clean energy to power the world. For some, it's always 30 years away. But last month, a significant step was taken by the fusion community towards that goal. We'll hear about that shortly. And later in the podcast, we'll hear about the role that robotics is playing in the attempts to make nuclear fusion energy a reality. First, though, we'd like to thank Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this podcast. The company is one of the world's leading developers, manufacturers and suppliers of vacuum solutions. Pfeiffer Vacuum has been producing innovative end-to-end vacuum solutions since 1890 and over the years has collaborated with some of the largest and most ambitious scientific experiments. And for many years, Pfeiffer Vacuum has been a globally well-established and highly competent partner for fusion experiments. One thing all these experiments have in common, they all need reliable, high-performance vacuum equipment. Using different kind of vacuum solutions, starting with gauges, mass spectrometers, leak detectors, turbo pumps, and especially designed tritium-compatible pumps. For Pfeiffer Vacuum, it's especially important to work out a solution in close cooperation with the user. Find out more at pfeiffer-vacuum.com. Here's Leah Morgan. I'm a diagnostic project engineer at the UK Atomic Energy Authority. At work, we have two tokamaks, so we have two big fusion experiments. On them are a bunch of sensors. They're sort of mini diagnostics, mini experiments that sit all over these tokamaks and they measure things like temperature and density and all kinds of fun things. A tokamak is a donut-shaped device containing magnets that are used to control ionised gas known as plasma. The goal is to create just the right extreme temperature for atoms to start fusing together and releasing energy in the same process that occurs inside the sun. The two tokamaks that Leah works on are based at the Cullum Centre for Fusion Energy in Oxfordshire. One is the Joint European Taurus, or JET for short. The other has the not-quite-so-catchy name of the Mega Ampere Spherical Tokamak, also known as MAST underscore U. So each of these sort of sensors, these mini-experiments, they have an associated physicist. So I kind of work with those physicists to make these diagnostics a reality, basically. So that's the sort of project engineer part of my job, is taking these cool ideas for new ways to measure things inside the tokamaks and making them real things and then putting them on the machines. Before we get into the details of the recent breakthrough, I first asked Leah if she could remind us what fusion energy is and how her team is trying to harness fusion energy at the Cullum Centre. Fusion energy is the energy source that powers all the stars in our universe. It essentially involves fusing or combining two small nuclei, (laughs) mashing them together, so they become one larger nuclei and loads of fusion energy. So at the UK Atomic Energy Authority, we're taking two isotopes of hydrogen. We're taking deuterium and tritium, or heavy hydrogen and super heavy hydrogen, and heating them up to 150 million degrees and forcing them to fuse together to make helium, 
and a little tiny neutron that goes flying off with all of our fusion energy. What would a nuclear fusion power plant actually look like? Power plants haven't really changed in design in decades. I mean, um, they are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> um, so for those who don't know, most power plants have um, sort of Victorian technology in them. You heat up water, big tank of water, that turns into steam, steam drives a turbine, turbine makes electricity. And the only thing that's really changed is what sits inside it and heats up that water. So even a, a nuclear fission power plant essentially has nuclear reactions heating up that water right in its core, which is wild when you think about it. It's literally sort of the highest tech and the most basic tech sitting next to each other and powering the world. So I imagine for the most part, a fusion energy power plant would look very similar to any other power plant. It would have those big cooling towers. It would have, you know, a big tank of water driving a turbine. Although I do know that part of our research in the fusion community in general is what would a fusion energy power plant look like? What would it need? Um, would it have this big tank of water in it that we're heating up to drive a turbine? So I imagine it would look like a normal power plant from the outside, although, you know, can never tell. New tech might arise. <laughs> Maybe, but can you tell me about the recent exciting news for the fusion community? JET, the Joint European Taurus, is a massive tokamak, a massive magnetically confined fusion experiment that UK AEA runs on behalf of Eurofusion. So Eurofusion is like um, a big consortium of fusion companies all over Europe. And earlier this year, JET managed to break its own record um, for the most, for the longest sustained fusion pulse. So in 1997, JET ran some world record breaking campaigns, the sort of first campaigns of their kind. When I say campaign, I mean a series of scientific experiments. And these included the world record for the most fusion power produced in a single pulse. So when we run the machine once, we say that is a pulse. And this record was 0.1 seconds <laughs> we managed to run it for, um, which is still a massive achievement because um, energy is energy, power is power. But for future fusion power plants, we need sustained fusion. We need fusion that can run for long periods of time. And the plasma superheated fuel inside the machine can basically start to collapse within less than a second, like tens of seconds. Um, so while being able to run it for 0.1 seconds was excellent, we need a long sustained fusion pulse. And at the time we did manage to do that. We ran for about five seconds and our goal here was to reproduce those experiments, run jet hotter, run it longer, and essentially prove that our physics models that we were basing future power plants on were good, <laughs> were correct. Um, another reason we ran them was we had recently replaced the inner wall inside jet. So jet is a big fusion experiment and it is running experiments, testing things for ITER which is the next fusion experiment being built in the south of France. And as part of that, we replaced the whole inner wall inside JET with the ETA-like inner wall, which is an excellent name. It's genuinely called ETA-like. Yes, it's ETA-like. <laughs> 
And uh, we needed to know that this wall worked. We we needed to know that we could run sustained plasmas just like we had done in 1997 and that uh, we knew what we were doing, basically. So we tried to run another one of these sustained pulses. It went excellently. We got even more energy out. We, we ran even hotter. And we sort of sat down, look at the results and thought, let's go again. Let's run it even hotter. So Jet managed to produce 59 megajoules of fusion energy over five seconds, which is extremely impressive and is more than double what it managed to produce in 1997, which is awesome. Yes, but what does it really mean? Jet's whole purpose is to tell us how to run a fusion reactor to prepare us to have fusion power plants in the future. So um, this directly feeds into those future power plants. It demonstrates that we are um, able to run these sustained pulses that we know what we're doing. So while five seconds might not sound like a massively long time, in terms of fusion, it's an extremely long time. So these plasmas that we are running can, I would say, collapse. Turbulences can build up inside them and they poof, disappear. And that can happen in tenths of seconds. So if you can run for five seconds, you know you can run a sustained plasma. So if you can run for five seconds, you can run for five minutes and you can run for five hours and so on as you get more and more advanced machines. So this sort of directly impacts our ability to to show we know what we're doing with these machines, which is extremely exciting. Can Jet do more than five seconds? Is this some? Will Jet be able to expand beyond that? Tragically, Jet cannot do more than five seconds. So Jet was built in the 1980s, and at the time, cutting edge fusion magnet technology was copper coil magnets. So these magnets, I don't believe they have any direct cooling, so they get hot like really really hot um and that limits how long we can actually run the machine for so um we essentially run once we run a pulse and then we wait 20 minutes for the magnets to cool down we watch it go down on these screens and then we run another pulse and that's basically a, a day of scientific campaigns uh fusion reactors of the future are going to have high temperature superconducting magnets. So companies like Tokamak Energy are working on those. I think um, Spark is working on them in America as well. It's the cutting edge magnet technology of today. It's what all future Tokamaks will likely have in them. So yeah, tragically Jet can only run for five seconds at a time, but it's still extremely cool. <laughs> okay, so it's ITER-like because what Jet's doing is proving that ETER can work. But ETER has also been being built for a very long time, right? This is this is a big project and it's taking a long time. So ETER is a sort of world experiment. You can think of it as the CERN of fusion energy. So there are loads of partners involved. There are, am I going to try and name them? Yes, China, the European Union, India, Russia, America, Korea, Japan. I believe the seven. I'm pretty sure the seven. And when you have all these countries working together, things don't necessarily run super fast. 
<laughs> However, uh, they are certainly on their way. ETA is being built at the moment. They're uploading these really cool um, sort of time lapses of it being built. And I believe it's on track for being finished in 2025 with First Plasma, I think, in 2030, which is going to be amazing because it's in the south of France. So I will get to visit and go to the south of France at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to ask if that was a, that was a plan. But wait, what does that mean, First Plasma? I mean, I assume that doesn't mean, OK, now we're, now we're in the world of nuclear fusion. So um, turning ETA on is going to be a really massive endeavour. It is significantly larger than JET. You can think of it as a big blown up JET, even larger. And as part of that, there's going to be inevitably all kinds of things that come up. So the plan is to finish buildings, start running all the checks, checking qualities, everything as we expected, and then to be running the first experiments, I believe, in 2030. And then once we know that it's operating as expected, it's doing what we think, we can start running um, big DT experiments. So that's deuterium and tritium, which are considered the fusion fuels of the future, which future power plants will end up using. Deuterium and tritium produce a large amount of fusion energy for the amount of heat it takes to fuse them. To put that in a way that makes sense, <laughs> when you do fuse it, fusion, you have to take your fusion fuels and you have to get them to overcome the Coulomb barrier between them. So you've got these nuclei and obviously they don't want to hang out together. They're repelling each other. So you've got to get them super hot and super dense and super high pressure. That's easy to do inside of a star, in the heart of a star. You can imagine it is hot and dense and high pressure. But on Earth, pressure and density are difficult to achieve. So inside these fusion experiments, we just go straight for temperature. Um, so while the inside of the sun is about 15 million degrees, the inside of something like jet is 150 million degrees. So that's the kind of temperature you have to work with to get these uh, hydrogen nuclei close enough to actually force them to combine and become helium and release loads of fusion energy. And when you compare different fusion fuels and sort of the cross sections of those nuclei, they have a sort of curve on their cross sections that varies across temperature. So for each of these, there's a perfect temperature to get the perfect cross section to force a reaction. And deuterium and tritium just have the sort of perfect heat it's like the maximum heat we can achieve um and it's a super efficient reaction so in terms of things you'd want inside of a power plant they are kind of perfect as you say when a lot uh, a lot of different countries are working together to to make something like this it 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 takes a long time how does how does it follow then that nuclear fusion is going to be the power of the future if it takes this many to do it how is it going to power the world? When we say fusion is the energy of the future, we are talking about a future where we have removed fossil fuels and we're now doing something called baseloading the grid. So we've taken out everything that's producing loads of carbon, loads of nasty things. And in the ideal future, we've replaced those all with fusion, which as a reaction doesn't produce any carbon at all. There's still room for nuclear fission in that energy mix there's still room for our renewables obviously solar and wind but uh, obviously it's not an 
immediate fix to the climate crisis. The climate crisis is immediate and now <laughs> slightly urgent. We, yeah, like I say, like to think of it as the fuel of the future. So rather than an immediate solution to the climate crisis, it is what we'll be using years from now when our energy demand is extremely high and we need a efficient, low-cost, carbon-free energy source. So is it sort of altruistic? You're sort of working on it for other people or are you hoping for it in your lifetime? I would hope for it in my lifetime. I would I would at least hope for the first demonstration power plants in my lifetime. After ITER, we have things like DEMO, which is the first demonstration power plant, another greatly named thing, which JET has fed into ITER. ITER will feed into DEMO. And that's planned for the 2040s. So I would hope to see them soon. <laughs> Selfishly, I would like to see them and work in one. That would be awesome. When did it come into your life? I, I did a master's degree in physics and I got to the end of my degree. I'd always been under the impression that I was going to do a PhD, as is often the case for physics students who have masters. And I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't settle on anything. I, I was interested in too many things. Um, and as part of our nuclear module, we did a very small bit on fusion energy. And there was all this talk of, you know, um, doesn't release any carbon and it's the energy of the future. It powers stars. And I was like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> um, so I started looking up, how do I do that? How do I put that in my life? Um, and the UK Atomic Energy Authority had a graduate scheme, but they were only hiring engineers. And I thought they probably won't want me, a lowly physicist. <laughs> um, so yeah, I applied to their graduate scheme, having decided, yes, I'm doing fusion energy now and was very lucky to get on. So yeah, I'd say sort of fourth year was when I first discovered it. And now it's a big part of what I do. Tell me about the process of physics to engineering. Is it been okay? I've been made fun of, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it's been extremely fun, actually. Um, there's, I've, I've so enjoyed sort of the practical application of physics. I never really got on with the theoretical side of things um although I did very enjoy particle physics but even then it was the the detectors and the actual experiments um so it's been really fun sort of developing those practical skills and um all the sort of day-to-day -day communication you know speaking to physicists working with experts in various fields so yeah it's been it's been a journey <laughs> but it's been a, a really fun one I mean, are you going to stick with the engineering? Do you think you'll go back to the physics side of things or do you feel like you're meeting them nicely in the middle? To be honest, I do feel like I am in that sweet spot between physics and engineering because I have the physics background. I understand all the weird physics that's going on inside these diagnostics. But at the same time, I'm gaining those engineering skills. So um, how do you actually get something on the machine? Although I'd never say no to going back to physics. I think if I found the right thing, I might I might come back. <laughs> but at the minute, I'm, I'm a big fan of the sweet spot that I'm in that feels like a really good balance of, um, <laughs> I was going to say reading books and doing things. <laughs> <laughs> where, where do you think it's going to take you? I, I like everything. <laughs> I'm keen in the next thing that I see. So I'm really interested in gaining more knowledge over these different diagnostics. I'd love to put some diagnostics in at ITER, which is hopefully something I'll be able to do in the near future. 
but I'm also interested in getting into the uh, jet control room and the mass U control room, which is our other tokamak on site. Um, they There are many scientists and engineers actually that work in the control room to operate the devices during experiments. And it's extremely cool. Um, unfortunately, so that we could look after jet actually during um, during the UK lockdown, I was kicked out. <laughs> My training was cancelled uh, in the jet control room to protect operations. Totally understandable, a little hurtful. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping at some point to get back in and um, be able to finish my training because that is a sort of one-off opportunity that you don't get to do anywhere else. So I would love to um, sit in the control room and, and mess with things. <laughs> yeah, well, you say you might have a chance to do diagnostics at Meta. Is that sort of you hope to or... That's in the pipeline. So the UK is involved with ETA um, and my department that I work in is diagnostics and fusion engineering. So we are hoping at some point to take on some ETA contracts, contracts, uh, ETA contracts out there work, various different things um, and hopefully, yeah, get to get to do a diagnostic in the near future, which is extremely fun. <laughs> and one of the main concerns, obviously, of nuclear fission is the radioactive waste. I believe that's certainly not the case with nuclear fusion. We are essentially doing the opposite of nuclear fission when we do um, fusion energy, when we do nuclear fusion. Instead of taking something large and splitting it into two, we are literally taking two things small and making them into one larger thing. So when you do uh, a fusion experiment, when you have fusion reactions, you don't produce any... Um, radioactive waste during the experiment so um you you produce helium and a neutron so there's <laughs> nothing particularly strange coming out of the machine the only uh i suppose radioactive waste you end up with is the actual shell the actual vacuum chamber of your fusion reactor once you've done with it so over the years being bombarded by neutrons the vacuum chamber itself gets a little hot, <laughs> a little spicy. Um, so eventually you have to find a way of dealing with that. Although I would say that the vacuum chamber remains hot, remains slightly radioactive for decades compared to um, waste produced by a fission plant that is extremely long lived, talking hundreds of thousands of years. So yeah, it's a uh, while it sounds very similar at its core, they are two very different energy sources. But anybody who's been following the news recently might have seen um, the concerns around Chernobyl and what can happen if a hostile power of some sort takes control of a nuclear fission plant. Is that something we would need to worry about with fusion? So one of the, I mean, main concerns around nuclear fission is the fact that producers fissile material it produces material that could hypothetically be turned into a nuclear weapon of some kind one of the positives of fusion energy nuclear fusion is that it doesn't produce this there is nothing that you could run onto site and take and use for ill will so i would say that is a benefit of nuclear fusion is it just doesn't have that same worry well that's certainly a good thing but inside a tokamak is not the kind of place that a human being would like to go. And that's where the robotics comes in. And here's Helena Livesey. I am a mechanical design engineer in our remote 
Applications for Challenging Environments, also known as RACE at UKAEA. RACE in general is looking at how we can utilise robotics to maintain, well, we started looking at how we can maintain fusion reactors and we've kind of gone from there into other challenging environments as well. So we've got, you know, over 30 years experience um, of maintaining JET at UKAEA. Um, and with doing that, we've had to use remote means to do it, robotics, um, because it's a challenging environment to send humans into. Um, so to keep our operators safe, we use these robotics. And with all that experience, we're able to then use that in other areas like um, uh, decommissioning nuclear reactors. Um, and, you know, space, oil and gas, um, looking at how we can use the experience we've gained from fusion um, in other areas. The plasmas at JET are generated inside the machine's inner vacuum chamber, which is lined with beryllium and tungsten. The plasma torus has a radius of three metres and a volume of almost 80 cubic metres. I asked Helena to describe the robots that are sent into this chamber. What we use in JET um, is, we call it mascot. Um, and it's not quite a robot, it's what we would call a manipulator. Um, but for all intents and purposes, it's, it's a robot. Um, what what um, happens is, so we have mascot on, we put it on a robotic boom that goes into the vessel. And um, we have a copy of what we send into um, our machine in our control room, which is you know behind concrete walls, about 30 metres away. And there's an operator in our control room who moves the arms of the copy that we have. And when they move those arms, the, the machine that we have um, in vessel copies exactly what, what they've done um, in the control room. Um, so it's a really intuitive way of performing these tasks. Um, but it does take quite a few years to kind of uh, to, to train to be able to use this system because it's... it's um, it's kind of like computer games. You only have 2D views. Um, so it, it makes it that bit more difficult to figure out what you're doing. You know, if you're bolting up something and it's in front of you, you can turn your head, see where the hole is. And it's that bit easier to put something um, in where you want to put it. Um, and it, it's just that little bit harder when you've only got camera views to go off. Jet on the inside is sort of a donut shape. Um, and we've got some very small um, holes, sort of, uh, we've got two on either side of the, uh, of the machine. And through that small hole, we have to get something, it looks a little bit like a person. When you, so we've got like a, a, a box for the body, it's got two arms, um, and there's a camera for a head kind of thing. Um, so it, it does look quite like a person. Um, and we have to sort of fold that up quite small to be able to get inside. Um, and how we get inside is basically um, something we call a boom. And it, it's, it's just sort of like a, a robot arm. So it's got lots of links, um, a bit like if you ever had one of those toy snakes as a child. That, um, yeah, so that, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, we send that in so that we're able to get round the full, um, full way round to every area of this donut um, that we're going into. What sort of thing is this 
person-shaped thing that's not a robot. <laughs> person-shaped robotics thing that isn't a robot <laughs> called mascot. What's it doing? Um, all kinds of things. So, uh, I mean, one of the first things it has to do when it go, goes in there is put lights in because it, it's we don't have them in there usually when we're doing fusion. Um, they're not needed, but we do need them to be able to see what we're doing when we do maintenance. Um, so that's one of its first tasks. Um, other things it's doing is um, kind of picking and placing, removing components. So something we did um, a few years ago was change all of the tiles on the inside of Jet. Um, part of the experiments it's doing at the minute is proving that the next stage machine called ETA um, will, uh, you know, that, that that's going in the right direction for the science. So we changed the tiles inside so they were more like the design that ETA was going to do. And that was a huge, huge task. Um, took sort of several months to change all of these tiles. And it seems quite a simple task. You know, it's um, bolting and unbolting something, picking it up and, and moving it. And it's very easy for a human. But when you're putting that extra complexity in of using a manipulator, it, it makes it um, a bit more challenging and you've got to do more planning. Um, so that, that that was an example of a, of a task we did, but there's all kinds of things like cutting and welding. We have a hoover um, that we send in there as well um, to kind of tidy up the dust from the bottom. Um, yeah, uh, lots of, of, of different tasks, everything you would need to do to be able to maintain it, basically. So people don't go in there at all? Um, we try to avoid it. There are some cases and, and it depends... So when we haven't used um, tritium, like we have used in these most recent experiments, it's, it's a pretty safe environment to be sending somebody in. Um, so we can send them in for, for short periods. But now we've used tritium, that's harder um, because it's not, it's not as safe anymore to be inside the vessel. So now we have to do pretty much everything um, with our remote systems. Do you feel attached to mascot? Is it, you know, because it's person-shaped, does it affect you, the way you feel? Uh, I guess a little bit, yeah. I, we all quite like Mascot. Um, <laughs> and he, it's been around for a while, so there's, yeah, there's lots of people um, attached to it. And it's been through quite a few different iterations. Um, we're on Mascot 6 now, um, and there have been a few point fives in, in between. <laughs> um, so, yeah, because it's... I can't remember exactly when we first used it, but it, it's a, at least 20 years old, if not 30. Um, so some of the bits inside there have had to change um, because we just can't get hold of them or, or they weren't, they're not the best technology anymore. Um, so, yeah, um, it, I guess we are all quite attached. In, when did you start thinking, do you know what I'm going to do? Uh <laughs> send manipulators into things that are recreating what happens at the heart of stars in terms of getting into the robotics side it was kind of an accident um i mean i was so i'd done mechanical engineering at university and um i was kind of coming to the end of it thinking what, what am i going to do next what's my what's my job going to be and i was looking at my options you know quite a lot of engineers going to cars and planes and uh, trains and I just, it didn't inspire me. Um, I wanted to be able to do something, you know, that would have big positive global impact. And I'd heard about JET um, and thought yeah, that would actually kind of fit the bill. Um, so applied and then discovered that they had this robotics department 
that that definitely sounds really cool (laughs) so yeah I just it was kind of by accident it's not something you hear about at school (laughs) no no it's not is it (laughs) it's really really very exciting so when um these other applications that you've gone to is is that mascot seven eight ten is or is that a complete are they completely different designs that go off into completely different we do lots of so if you came to visit us um you'd see lots of different robots in our um in our buildings so we've got something like mascot which is kind of human size but we've also got something called tom but tom is a sort of as tall as the building so it's massive it's this big boom and we're using that to look at a step even beyond eater um and uh, looking at how we can manipulate really big um components um because when they get to that size it's very difficult um to control um but then we're also doing things much smaller we have one of boston dynamics spot um robots spot, spot the dog if you've come across those before um and we've sent that um to chernobyl to look at um sort of mapping the radiation um how that is around that area um and we've got a few other robots in between as well um so we're kind of using with some of the other applications we're looking at how we can use industrial robots mascot is a very bespoke machine for for exactly what we're doing um whereas you know if we're looking at trying to make systems like this more efficiently if we can use industrial robots with all the experience they have, you know, kind of robots you'd see in a car factory, then it makes that development um, a bit quicker and we can use that experience rather than reinventing the wheel. So with your role in JET and looking back to the recent news, what does that mean for you? It proves the UK's role as a a global leader in fusion energy. Um, And for me personally, the results showed that ITER is going in in the right direction and, and most of my work is actually on ITER. So I look at um, mostly how we do pipe joining in ITER, which sounds like it should be really easy. You know, cutting and welding pipes must be done everywhere all the time. But when you put it in a, a fusion machine, um, it yeah, it, it becomes quite a bit more difficult. So for me, the jet results proving that ITER is going in the right direction when that's what I've been doing for the last four five years um it's it's nice to hear <laughs> yeah yeah no i imagine it is so is that tom isn't presumably doing that that kind of pipe joining tom's moving bigger stuff than that right? yes so tom is looking at um you know we've got this donut shaped um machine and we don't make it as one big donut we've got sectors so it's kind of like a chocolate orange we've got about eight sectors um in jet and more for eater and demo after that when maintaining demo those sectors might have to be changed and it's it's going to be a huge huge piece of metal with potentially some um liquid in there for from the blankets um and when you have metal that's that big it becomes wobbly and we've got to take this thing out of a very small hole um you know it's got like millimeters of tolerance in it and controlling that is really difficult. And currently, well, before we did started doing the research we are doing with Tom, we wouldn't know how to be able to control something accurately enough to, to make sure that we can get it out that hole without damaging. Um, so the work they're doing with Tom is looking at uh, perfecting a control system that can deal with basically a wobbly load. Cool. And, and who's joining the pipes? I, was, I say who. What, what's joining the pipes? 
the pipes I'm looking at are in the diverter. So the diverter is kind of where all the exhaust goes from um, the fusion reaction. So it's, it's where it gets really hot and these pipes are for cooling. Um, and they're right at the bottom of the machine. So um, we have a robot that will come in and take the first one out. And then there's another robot that will come in where it's been um, and can move around where the diverter should be. Um, and yeah, so that we've got a, a small arm on this mover that will then go in and cut the pipes so that we're able to take these diverter cassettes out. And then when we're putting them back in, it will also weld the, them back together because we have to be able to cut the pipe to be able to get this cassette out. So I'm looking at the, the actual tool that does the, the welding bit. I, I mean, it's a vital role, isn't it? I mean, it's a really important role in, in something that's just a huge undertaking. There's, there's a few areas, but and this is what and robotics is one of them. It, it's one of the main areas that will make fusion economically viable. So by that, I mean, you know, currently we can do fusion and, and we're doing research but when we get to making power plants it's got to be run by a business you know it's somebody has got to want to invest in mil building this machine and they're not going to do that if they can't maintain it if you know they do a few um few months of operation and then they're stuck like they can't maintain it or they're going to have to turn it off for 12 months this research in robotics making the maintenance as fast and as efficient as possible is what makes fusion power a reality. Thanks again to Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Pfeiffer Vacuum provides all types of vacuum equipment, including hybrid and magnetically levitated turbo pumps, leak detectors and analysis equipment, as well as vacuum chambers and systems. You can explore all of its products at pfeiffer-vacuum.com. Thank you to Helena Livesey and Leah Morgan for talking to me. If you'd like to hear more from Leah, I can recommend her YouTube channel, Leah Love Science. We'll be back next month with something else from this wonderful world of physics. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.